Good to be with you all, whether here or at home. <clears throat> if there's anybody here anywhere for the first time, my name's Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace, and uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the sermon this morning. God, thank you for being a God who speaks to us. I ask that you, that you would speak. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. You'd help us to have a heart and a mind that is open and receptive to, to your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, hearing that scripture read, I just feel so guilty. Um, because, and it feels so weird to be, having, to be hearing that outside. It just feels like there's lots of dissonance between, you know, hearing about the reality of Ecclesiastes and sort of his, the teacher's cynicism or wrestling with life. Uh, but we're in this book because it's a Lenten season, which has felt like a year almost to the day of one long Lenten season. Uh, but really, we're in a time of preparing for Holy Week of journeying with Jesus to the cross and resurrection, where we celebrate the words that we sang this morning that death, death cannot contain, death does not hold, that God himself through Jesus, will defeat death in the resurrection, and that's good news. But before we make it to the resurrection, there's an honest reckoning that we need to have with the way that life is. And so Ecclesiastes helps us in that endeavor. Uh, I once heard an atheist ask a Christian, and it was like a panel of conversation. He said, when you doubt, what do you doubt? When you doubt, what do you doubt? And I just love the assumptions underneath that question because there's an assumption, of course, that there are doubts that one has. It's not if, but what. And so I pose that question to you, when you doubt, what do you doubt? As we look at Ecclesiastes, the teacher, right, we see that there are two speakers, and for the majority of the book, we have this teacher named Kohelet who is describing his understanding of life and is wrestling with really deconstructing all the different ways that we find meaning, from the way that we think about our work to the way that we think about the pursuit of pleasure. Well, this morning we're going to look at the teachers wrestling with the idea of God. Who is God? Because in many ways, in the book of Ecclesiastes, God seems like a problem. Or at least, maybe not a problem, but certainly mysterious and confusing. And how do you reconcile the different things that one sees in life with who this God might be, and what does one see about life, and, and how does that then inform how one thinks about God? And so, again, doubt, struggles. What Kohelet wants to do is wants to bring us into those questions that we would wrestle alongside him with the various questions and things that he's wrestling with. So I pose the question again. When you doubt, what do you doubt? And then perhaps another question what do you do with the doubts you have? What do you do with the doubts that you have? I just want to give you a survey of verses and Ecclesiastes of what the teacher does with his doubts, or at least what it makes him question and wonder about. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 13, I, the teacher, when king over Israel and Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. Ecclesiastes 3, what gain have the workers from their toil? I've seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He's made everything suitable for its time. 
Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Ecclesiastes 6. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy upon humankind. Those to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing of all that they desire, yet God does not enable them to enjoy these things. Ecclesiastes 7, 13 through 14. It says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And then even later on, there's a tension. He, the, the teacher says, See this alone I found that God made human beings straightforward, but they have devised many schemes. So which one is true and which one is right? Ecclesiastes 8, 14 through 17, there's a vanity. Again, remember this idea of absurdity or an enigma. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked, and there are wicked people who are treated according to the conduct of the righteous. And I saw all the work of God that no one can find out what is happening under the sun. And then Ecclesiastes 9.1, which we just heard read, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, one does not know. How do these statements about God sit with you? Like, how do they, like, what do they do in, in, your, in your bones, in your body? Do you actually resonate with these questions? Are these questions you'd rather not actually consider? Or perhaps you've had these wonderings, you've had these thoughts. Certainly the last year, again, has been a year where perhaps maybe more than any other time there's been a questioning, maybe not so much about God and his character, but about just the way that he works in the world and why things are the way that they are. Certainly the last few weeks have been that for me and for those close to me. Why are things the way that they are? Why does God allow things to be the way that they seem to be? And the thing about Ecclesiastes is I'd love to tell you that if you read from beginning to end, all these questions that are raised are answered at the end. They are not. They are not tied up. They are, they just, they are allowed to be there and to remain. It's like this morning thinking about Ecclesiastes and hearing these truths that we sing in these songs. And it just seems like there's a stark contrast between the two. But somehow the Bible makes it possible for these tensions to exist and the Christian life and the wise Christian life is learning how to navigate and live within these tensions. Not saying that it's all this way, not saying that it's all the other way, but rather these two things coincide together. See, Ecclesiastes is wanting to say and suggest, as the teacher is, look, it is wise, actually, to question and to doubt. There is so much under the sun that is hard to navigate and to understand. And so to suffer and to doubt seems part of it. And it's part part partly or mostly connected to living a wise life. And there's good precedence for this in the Bible. And we at Grace, this is something we talk about, probably for some of you way too much, that it's okay to be honest with how you are in, in your relationship with God. Well, of course, the word we use is lament, that it's okay to lament. The honesty in the Psalms allows us the freedom to speak openly and honestly with God. How long, O Lord? How can this be? My, I'm, I'm living or I'm resting on a bed of tears. When will you make it right? When will you come again? You said this, but it's like this. I mean, we see this all throughout Scripture. We see this in Ecclesiastes. That to be one who doubts, to be one who wonders and questions in the midst of suffering or in the, in the midst of a confusing and chaotic world is not to be one without faith. It's actually to be part of of a covenant relationship. 
See, the books like Ecclesiastes passages, like the Psalms that I just mentioned, like Job, they suggest that, that questions and doubts are not only allowed in our life with God, but somehow central and essential to our life with God. And so Ecclesiastes shows us the reality of doubt. And I don't know, kids or young people, whether at home or whether here, if you're listening and not reading a story about good things, um, if, if you are wondering, if you have questions, if you aren't sure about things, that is okay and actually part of it. And I would imagine that your parents and those who love you are willing to engage those questions, willing to actually have a relationship with you that invites and makes space for the hard things that we here in this life, on this earth, wrestle with and concern ourselves with. Somebody said to struggle with one's faith is perhaps the surest sign that we actually have one. To struggle with faith is perhaps the surest sign that we actually have one. So again, when you doubt, what do you doubt? And what do you do with the doubts that you have? Do you try to push them away? Do you try to hide them? Do you try not to bring them up? Well, I would suggest that to do so is to slowly decay and erode the life of faith that you have. Ecclesiastes says to be wise is not only to take these seriously, but to somehow bring them before God. See, what's really beautiful about the teacher is that He's making these questions. He is wondering about these things in the midst of a life of faith. He is not external to it. And the thing about our culture, the thing about my generation is we just love to deconstruct. We love to question. We love to doubt. But often what, how we do it is we, rise, we raise ourselves above and we look down and we just judge and we poke, we poke holes in things instead of living within the story and actually taking the story seriously and then wondering and questioning really deeply about it. And that's what the teacher is doing from within, is wrestling and struggling with his faith. They're not external to the life of faith, but they're inside the story. They're part of his life. They're part of what it means for him to be faithful in his wrestling, in his journey, in his life of faith, in his life with God. So there's the reality of doubt that I think Ecclesiastes shows us, but there's also a gift that doubt gives to us. There is a gift that our doubts, that our, that our struggles, that our wrestling with perhaps our suffering gives to us. And the first gift is that it pulls us into a relationship. So here's a little bit about me. I would love relationships to exist without conflict. Like that would be the absolute best is to, to navigate a year of COVID without conflict would have been the, like, a, I, I don't know, I would just be praising for the rest of my life. Because the idea of conflict, the idea of being in tension and relationship, it's uncomfortable. I just want to evade it. I want to run away. I want to curl up in a ball in a corner where no one can find me. But that is not the reality of life nor of relationship. The actual reality of relationship is that conflict is involved. Why? Because you are dealing with two parties who are other and who are trying to be one another together in a relationship. Well, the thing about wrestling, the thing about our doubts, the thing about struggling with our faith 
is that it pulls us into a relationship with God where we are encountering the other God in an actual covenantal relationship. That the covenant can actually hold all that we have to bring to it. It can hold us in our absolute worst moments, in our absolute questioning moments where we are not sure if we're having a crisis of faith or if if these questions that we're wondering about are going to lead us down a, a bad path. That the covenant relationship can hold us. But that also, in that, God is also getting a sense of who we are as an other to God. That we are being pulled into a dynamic and full relationship. That if we weren't honest with our struggles, with our suffering, with our doubts, yes, perhaps it would be a relationship without conflict, but it would not be a relationship at all. If there would just not, there'd be nothing to hold it. There'd be no sort of dynamism that would make it something other than just coexisting together. God does not want to just coexist with us. He wants to be in relationship to us. So when we are honest about our faith and our struggles and our doubts like the teacher, that is wise because we are being pulled in to an actual relationship with the God who has created us. I mean, isn't that, imagine, just imagine for a moment that God created you as you and that invites you, whoever you are, wherever you might be, into relationship with him as you. That is who God wants to be in relationship with. Of course, through the person of Jesus and the the work of the Spirit, there is reforming and there there is nurturing And there is formational opportunities in our life. But he is inviting you and pulling you into that relationship. The gift of doubt is also, it also helps us not just to be pulled into relationship, but to take that relationship seriously where we're not just simply going along with things, but we're actually wrestling with the what and why of God. Have you stopped to consider, and Ecclesiastes is forcing us to do this, what God you are actually believing in and why. Because Ecclesiastes is wanting to continually confront the life that we think we're living versus the one that we're actually living and the God that we say we worship versus the God we're actually worshiping. So we're taking the relationship seriously and asking the what and why of God. And so when we go through our moments of doubt, when we wrestle with our suffering or the suffering of others, it's important to be honest because, again, these reveal something true about who God is and about who we are. Eugene Peterson says, we come to God not to get our way, but his. That there's an actual dealing with the God who is, and there's the thing about faith, The thing about understanding God is you don't just get to understand God by thinking about him, but by living with him. Israel, defined by wrestling, like absolutely defined by the idea of wrestling with God, and yet they were God's people. He knew them, they knew him, and there was absolute and complete faithfulness and covenant. So the last gift of doubt is that it reminds us that life of faith is about trust, not mastery. How much, of, how much of our lives, in our life of the spiritual life, we try to get a handle on God? We try to master God. 
we try to, to manipulate God into being this thing that if we do this, you know, maybe you can just give us a bone here or maybe you can just help us out in this way. We, we start to think that there's a quid pro quo situation in our relationship with God. But Ecclesiastes says, no, that's not how it works. We go to God to get his way, not ours. We are de dealing with a holy other God. And it's not about mastering this God, but it's about trusting this God. Part of what it means for God to reveal himself is to reveal himself in such a way that keeps us not completely knowing. That God's revelation is always somehow mystery, and we are always working and wrestling and struggling to understand who this God is that is revealing himself to us through the person of Jesus, by his ongoing work in the Spirit, through one another. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says this, Just as you do not know how the breath comes to the bones in the mother's womb, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The antidote to doubt is not certainty. It's trust. We are living and have been living in uncertain times. Kohelet, the teacher, constantly says life is just the one thing you can be guaranteed, or two things, life is confusing and completely absurd and we're all going to die. Thank you, the teacher. You were helpful. But those, those two things are the things that we can somehow know for sure. But within that type of life, the thing that we're called to is not to be certain, but to trust. To give ourselves over somehow to the God whom we can trust. The one we can entrust ourselves and our, our lives, our, the lives of others with. That's the call of the Christian life, not to be certain not to be completely defined and understood on every single point of how life fits together. It's to trust that the God that we have been called into life with is good. You know, I think of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Where Aslan, the, 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 the kids are, are wondering about this, this lion, about this, this Aslan. And, and one of the, the girls says, is he, is he safe? And I think the beaver responds, well, no, he's, he's not safe, but he's good. This God that we're called into life with doesn't often feel safe, isn't something we can get a handle on, but it's a God we can trust. And why? Why can we trust this God? Because in the midst of suffering, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our doubts, where is God himself found? He is found in the person of Jesus on the cross who, who proclaims perhaps the biggest doubt and the biggest question that one can proclaim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that is, that is the example of suffering and the example of doubt. And God does not shun away from it, but enters into the very heart of it. So where is God in our doubts and in our questions and our suffering, and the suffering of others, right in it, right next to us, right beside us? He is nowhere else. And that doesn't that doesn't necessarily absolve all of the wounds or take away the scars. But we can trust that the God who is with us in it all is the one who knows, is the one in whom we can have hope because he knows entirely and completely.
And that is good news. That is the best news. Now, I'm not sure everyone needed to hear this sermon this morning, but I was praying this week, and I was certain that there are some who did. There were, there were some who didn't just need to hear it, but there were some who need the God who is revealed somehow in it. And so if you are one of those people who have been barely hanging on, my words to you is be pulled into that relationship with God. Take that relationship seriously. The one, those of you who have been afraid of whatever, who have wanted to suppress or hide, don't. God wants to know you. God wants to know me. And there's a lot of ugly about me. Things I'd rather not you know, things I'd rather not God know. But he doesn't want a cleaned up version of Daniel. Man, I've, it's taken, I'm still working on it. It'll be my whole life to believe that that's true. But I want to believe it on behalf of you. I believe it more about you than I believe it about myself. So hear that. God wants you wholly and completely. And may you discover hope in that. So the worship team is going to come up right now. And we're going to sing songs. And throughout this whole series, the worship team have been asking me, so like, what are you going to be speaking on? And what, like, how do you think worship fits into that? And I, I, every time I'm like, yeah, I don't know, and I don't think anybody wants that type of worship uh, of, of the songs that might connect. But one thing I think might be good um, and be helpful for us is that it tells the, uh, helps tell a full truth about our life of faith, that it's both the words of the teacher, but it's also the songs that we are going to sing, songs like How He Loves Us. Yes, we can question, we can doubt, and we can wrestle with our suffering. But then we can also sing together that we, that we worship a God who loves us wholly and completely. And both of these things are true, and we need both of those. So as we sing, may these words, and perhaps you can't sing them, but, be, may, but receive them. But as we sing, sing them, sing them knowing that they don't eclipse other parts of ourselves but they, they, are, they are part of it. They are part of our life with God. So if you want to stand, uh, we're going to sing together.